Well, he is risen. <laughs> yeah, happy Resurrection Sunday. Yeah. He's alive. Jesus is alive. He rose from the grave and he's alive. What better news for the world than this? When I was a kid, I didn't understand this day. I didn't understand this. I sure didn't understand what Good Friday, what could be good about Good Friday. Didn't get that at all. Oh, yeah, we went to church and we sang all those, the, those hymns, songs like Christ the Lord with, is risen today and all those, we sang them with, we sang our lungs out. The whole church would just about rise up out of their seats and, and it was wonderful. But it didn't really make much sense to me. It, did, it, didn't really, it didn't really get it. I couldn't figure it out. I mean, how did Jesus fit with all the other stuff we did that day? Like, what, was the, what was the relationship between Jesus and the Easter Bunny? I mean, what was that all about? And What part does chocolate play in our celebration? And why chocolate eggs? And, and why do we color eggs at Easter time? All these things that we did. And why were hot cross buns so tasty? Why do they have a cross on their tops? Kid, I didn't get it. And it's easy. You can see how easily we could be confused. But I'm happy that my understanding actually grew. But it didn't actually really make sense to me until I realized, until I realized that everything the Bible said about Jesus was true. Everything. And when I realized that, what Jesus, that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be, that he was God in person, God in the flesh. And that my debt was paid in full by him at the cross. And that the proof of that was his resurrection to new life. When I finally understood that, everything changed. Everything. Jesus died on the cross. But he was raised to life. That the tomb is empty. And, and, and that sets Jesus apart from every other leader of every other spiritual movement. All of them. Muhammad founded Islam. Muhammad's dead. Died in the 7th century. So is the man that they called the, the Buddha. Moses died. He is buried. But Jesus is alive. One scholar wrote about that. He said, Bible scholar. He said, the major difference between the life and teachings of Jesus and those of any other great religious leader, and there are many great leaders, but the major difference lies in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and the others did not. They did not. However persistent their influence may be, they did not rise from the dead like Jesus. So along with the cross, the resurrection of Jesus is at the core of our faith. Because without the resurrection, the rest really doesn't matter. And Paul actually wrote that to, to um, the church in Corinth in the first of the two letters we have in the Bible that, that are still preserved. And he wrote this in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. He said, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Most, the most important thing. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, Peter. 
and then to the twelve, that inner core of disciples. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living when Paul is writing this, though some have fallen asleep, have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, Paul writes, as to one abnormally born. <laughs> born at the wrong time. Later, he came to it later, but Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, on the way to Damascus. Paul was writing to the church at Corinth because false teachers in that church had been saying that though, although Jesus had been raised from the dead, there was no resurrection for the rest of us. But if that was the case, Paul says, we would, we'd be, well, using a popular expression, we'd be toast. Verse 13 and 14 of that same chapter, he said, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can you say, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If our hope is only for this life on earth, he said, we are to be more than pitied. And what would be the point? Jesus would be another teacher, another really good teacher, but just another teacher. And we would still be separated from God forever because of our sins. But that isn't the case. He is risen. Nine, verse 19, same passage, Paul says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, he's talking about Adam and the fall of humanity and the fall, fall of everything. Since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, the Lord Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Mm. Yeah, yes. Without the resurrection, Jesus was was just a good teacher. It would also mean that he was mistaken about who he claimed to be and his ability to defeat death and sin. The resurrection proved that he did what he said, that he defeated death. Death is no longer to be feared. And he finished that with the same thing. He quoted from the Old Testament. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is alive. He's alive. It's the most amazing event in history. It's so amazing that, that really, even his closest friends had a hard time believing it at first. So how did they finally figure it out? Let's turn to John chapter 20 and we'll follow part of the story here. 
Uh, you can read along on the screen if you'd like from the New International. That's what I'm using. Let's start right at the beginning. This is after his body had been taken down from the cross and he'd been laid in a, in a new tomb in a garden. And it was done quickly before Passover began. Then there was Passover. Then, chapter 20, the day after Passover. Early, day after Sabbath. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. See, the stone is rolled away. Behold the empty tomb. <laughs> so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, which was John's way of <laughs> referring to himself. And he said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. And so Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and, and he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he didn't go in. And then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. And he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separated from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. Editorial comment after that in brackets from John. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary, She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them, and he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father have sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them 
And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, means the twin, one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. And through the door, though the doors were locked, excuse me a second, Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Last week uh, on TV there was a documentary uh, on the, the tombs of Egyptian kings and how they were hidden in, in the chambers of the pyramids. Uh, when they got to them, uh, when they were actually rediscovered, not discovered, but rediscovered by English archaeologists, what they found is that the majority of them had already been picked clean by grave robbers. <clears throat> that happened in Israel too. Grave robbing was common in the first century. And Mary comes and the body's not there. And she feared that somebody had stolen Jesus' body so they could steal the linen and the spices which were so valuable. And so she runs and finds Peter and John and tells them. And, and I love that, I always love the fact that though John is actually quite a bit older than Peter, he gets to the tomb first. He runs past him. <laughs> Sorry, a bit of a tickle in my throat today. And that Peter doesn't stop John stops and looks in. Peter just goes right past him and barges in. I like that about Peter. Not that he's pushy, but he's brave. And he sees the, the strips of cloth there, and he sees the, the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head neatly there by itself, separate. And then it says in John 20, it says, John went in with him after that, and it says they, they, he saw and believed. Believed what? What did he believe? Well, for certain, he believed that the body was gone. Because Jesus had told them, Jesus had told them they would come alive again, but they thought he meant alive in the afterlife, in heaven. They didn't understand that Jesus meant a literal, physical resurrection. They didn't get it. They just saw that the body was gone. And there was nothing left to do at that point but go back to where they were staying. But Mary didn't leave. She stood there. 
probably didn't know what to do. Filled with grief. After seeing Jesus suffer and after watching him die on the cross and be buried. Now, a further offense, someone has taken the body. Now, even today, we find there are laws against um, uh, disturbing a corpse or disturbing a grave. Um, she stoops over and she looks in, hoping that maybe it had just been a dream, that she'll see his body and everything is going to be like it ought to be, or she thinks. But it isn't there. But she sees two angels sitting where the body should be. Interesting, she isn't afraid. But the angels look at her and say, Woman, why are you crying? Why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? I try to imagine what, if you've, you've felt profound grief in your life, you lost a, a, a loved family member. We've all had parents or grandparents or brothers or sisters, and some of us children who we have lost. And the kind of grief that you feel. And I try to imagine what Mary must have thought. Why am I crying? Why am I crying? I just watched him die. Now she's too polite. I, I wouldn't have said that. <laughs> what is wrong with you? Why am I crying? I just saw him die and now his body is stolen and you're asking me why I'm crying. And she turns away. I don't know. Maybe she's just shaking her head even at the question. And Jesus is standing there but she doesn't recognize him. I mean, why would she recognize him? She had seen him die. She's not expecting to see him alive. But when he gently and tenderly speaks her name, was it something about the way he said it, something about his voice, that she recognizes who it is? And she clings to him. Teacher, Rabbani. But Jesus gives her the message for the others. Don't hold on to me. Tell my brothers and sisters, I am ascending to heaven, to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Let them know. So she runs to the others. She sees, tells them what she's seen. And they don't really believe her. Mark's gospel actually says that they refuse to believe her. Luke, Luke's account of, of, the, of, of these events says that they think that what she's feeling is just like an idle tale. It's wishful thinking. This is so traumatic to her that she's just imagining that she just saw him alive. But it was true. And later that evening, Jesus comes to them behind the locked door with this message of peace. And he shows them where the nails had been. And he shows them the hole in his side where the soldier had thrust in his spear to make sure he was dead before they gave the body to the disciples to bury. He was alive. And they're just overjoyed. He's alive and it was all true. But he didn't just come just to show them that he was alive. He came actually to commission them. Because he told them at that point, as the Father has sent me to earth to tell this good news about forgiveness of sins, as the Father has sent me 
I'm sending you. You're going to tell others. So he's saying to them, don't huddle behind closed doors. Friends, go tell others about me. And that's why I think John adds the detail that Jesus breathed on them. The original language says he breathed the Holy Spirit into them. And he said, go announce the forgiveness of sins. Have you ever, we call them near-death experiences. Uh, Actually, it's, I guess it's as close to death as people can be. Sometimes you think they're dead, but they're not really. But have you ever had a life given back to you? Someone maybe you never thought you'd see alive again, but completely healthy and whole. They're absolutely overjoyed, except for Thomas. (laughs) Because Thomas hadn't been there when Jesus appeared to the rest of them. And he just wasn't going to believe unless he saw for himself. So Jesus accommodates that. And he says, look, put your finger here, Thomas. Put it in my sight. If that's what it's going to take to convince you, stop doubting and believe. And his his response shows that he has really come to believe and know it's true. He cries out, my Lord and my God. Um, The only other gospel account that even mentions Thomas, it doesn't really, it's just here in John that we hear about Thomas. It kind of alludes to him in Matthew. Matthew writes that when they met Jesus on the mountain in Galilee, they worshipped him, but he says some doubted. Even then, they still had doubts. That might have been referring to Thomas. But have you ever wondered why John included Thomas's comments? I think it, it's because some of us just have a harder time believing than others. Some of us go, oh, that's, yeah, that's true. Okay, I get it. I believe. And others of us go, unless I see the nails, unless I see some kind of miraculous sign from God, I'm not going to believe. I think that's there for us. Because if, if you're a, a skeptic, some of us are just naturally skeptical. But when we have enough evidence, we become people of faith. But we gather the evidence and come to the conclusion and then exercise the faith. So if you're a Thomas and you're a little un- it's still unsure about some of these things, be encouraged. Jesus will make himself known to you if you ask him. I did not know everything when I put my trust in Jesus. I didn't know much, but I did know the basics, that he was God in the flesh. I believed that, that he had become a human, that he, by living a perfect life, became a sacrifice in my place. And God accepted that on my behalf. And that by placing my trust in him, and his sacrifice, I was made right with God. And, but then... I have to follow. That's all I knew. And when people would see something different in me, they'd see the change. They'd look at me and go, like, some of them, like, what's with you? And, and other people going like, something has happened to you. And then I would tell them, all I could tell them was, I've asked Jesus Christ into my life. I believe he was who he said he was. 
I believe he has done that. He's come into my life. I asked him to make me the kind of person he wants me to be. And all I can tell you is that I believe it. It happened and it's true. I didn't know anything else. Nothing. But I knew enough. But I love what Jesus says to Thomas here. He says, it doesn't shame him. It doesn't say, come on. He just states the fact. Because you've seen me, you believe. Blessed are those who have not seen me physically and yet have believed. And John finishes this chapter again with that little editorial comment. Uh, we didn't read it, but it's verses 30 and 31. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. <sighs> that we may believe, and by believing, we may have life in Jesus. You know, all of them had followed Jesus the teacher. They had followed Jesus the prophet. But the reality of his resurrection really brought it all together for them that this was Jesus their Lord and God. What does it actually mean to believe in Jesus? Just what we've said. To understand what he has done. Who he is. Our own need for forgiveness for sin and to turn from him. And that's what it means to repent. Jesus, when he started his ministry, said the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And to put my trust in him, to be my leader. Belief is not just to have facts about Jesus, to know who he is and do nothing with that. It is to understand these things and then act to place your trust in and follow him. That will transform your life. That has transformed mine. The Bible says, he, it tells us here, John says that he appeared to a lot of people during those 40 days after his resurrection and before he ascended to heaven. John finishes with another chapter after this. I think he could have ended the gospel there, but he does like a follow-up. This is quite a few days after these events. John 21. We're not going to read the whole thing, but we're going to just summarize it a bit. He told them to go back to Galilee and wait for him there. So they knew they would see him again at least once more before he went to heaven. And so they go back. They go back to what, what are you going to do? You go back to where you grew up. You go back to where you made your living. What are you likely to do while you're waiting? They went back to their old pastimes, their old, their old work. They went back to being fishers. And I love the scene. It is so, it's so vivid to me that I can, if you've ever been on a lake in the early part of the morning when the water is completely calm, it just stays with you. Beautiful scene. Sunrise. It's quiet. There's not even any wind usually at dawn. The sails are probably slack on their boats. The only sound might be the, the sound the oars make as they're rowing back home 
on the Sea of Galilee. Um, and they're tired because they've been out in the night doing their fishing. Night fishing was common. They would use, it's illegal now, but they would use torches or, 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 or light to attract the fish, and then they'd catch them. But they had not caught a thing. These are experienced guys. They know what they're doing, but they didn't catch a thing. That's where we pick the story up in verse 4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. <coughs> he called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, said to Peter, It's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat. <laughs> Peter couldn't wait. He didn't wait for the boat to catch up. He waited. He got right in the water. The others follow in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 yards, about 90 meters. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning, of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. And so Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fifth, 153 but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dare ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So he calls out from shore, and they're, they're, they're at least 90 meters away. They don't recognize him. It could be that you know, early morning, there's often a mist that rises over water. Perhaps it was not quite clear who was calling them. It could have been somebody that maybe just wanted to buy some fish fresh caught. Friends, haven't you, haven't you got any fish? Uh, no. Throw your net on the other side of the boat. Throw it on the right side. And after a whole night of doing nothing, there's so many fish in the net that they can't pull it up into the boat. These are experienced fishermen. I wonder if that stirred a memory. Because when Peter first met Jesus, he was fishing. And he was told to throw his net over the side of the boat. And they caught so many fish that the net started to break. At that point, Peter was freaked out that first time. He came and he went down on his knees in front. And he said, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. He knew there was something incredibly different about Jesus, even though he didn't completely understand everything. Now he does. He goes it suddenly dawns on him, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. So he, and, I, and I'd probably, I don't know if you would, but I think I'd be jumping on the side too. I'd be getting over that boat as fast as I could. 
We're rowing like a madman to get back to shore. And he got, gets there and there's breakfast cooking. There's an open fire. There was fish and bread. A reminder of something else, perhaps, of how he had multiplied five small barley loaves and two small fish for a crowd of thousands. Come and have breakfast. And so they, these, these seven tired, hungry men sit down to a meal provided by the Lord Jesus. All through Scripture, meals are far more significant than we make them to be. To eat together is about way more than food. To eat together is an act of friendship and it's an act of community. That's why it's such an insult if you refused food from someone. But there's something special. Even, even we, we get that too. There's just something special about having a meal with friends, family, isn't there? Especially if you've got a lot of history involved. Especially with such a strong common connection. Especially with someone you thought you would never see again. Jesus invites us into that kind of relationship. He wants... He has an, a life for us that is more satisfying and meaningful than anything we could ever imagine. It really is the good news of God. Not only are we forgiven and restored to God, we've been brought together into a community. And boy, after a year of having to be apart, don't we recognize and understand the value of community? Imagine the conversation. Try to imagine the conversation that morning. You're, you're absolutely probably giddy with excitement that Jesus is there and you're eating with him and you're not sure what to say. I mean, they must have had a lot of questions for them. They knew it was great to be together with him. But what about Peter? Yeah, Peter, all was not right. There had been a big falling out between Peter and Jesus. Peter had failed Jesus. They'd all failed him. They'd all run away. But Peter, perhaps in the more public way than anyone, had failed Jesus, denying him three times that he even knew him. And that Jesus knew it was going to happen and predicted it. And Peter was ashamed. And I think he was probably shocked when he heard the words that the angel told the disciples in, in Mark 16, 7. Go tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. What that must have done to him. Go tell the disciples and Peter. I want him there too. But they've got unfinished business. And I wonder, man, I even wonder what Peter was, he was so excited as he was making his way to show, but shore, but I wonder what else he was thinking. Because the memories of what he had done would have been so fresh in his mind. And we know what it's like when, when we're, we're not right with someone, when we're on the outs with someone. There's a barrier between them. We know what that feels like. There's tension. And Peter certainly felt that. After they had finished eating, 
they, Peter asked, Jesus asked Peter a question. They probably, as they were walking along, because as the story progresses in John, you realize he, at one point he turns back to look at John who was following them. But he asks him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Pointing backwards to the disciples. Oh. Here's Peter. He boasted of his great love for Jesus before that night. He'd even said, if anyone else leaves you, Lord, I'll never leave you. Not me. But humbled by his failure, at the same time grateful that Jesus included him with the others, he answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know I love you. Jesus says, then feed my lambs. Take care of my little ones, Peter, my children. Teach them about me and about God's great love for them. And then they walk a little farther. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then take care of my sheep. Shepherd them. Look after them. Watch over them. Pull them out of ditches if you have to with your crook. Teach them about me. Spiritual leaders are first and foremost shepherds. But then Jesus asks him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? We don't know for certain, but it, it seems pretty straightforward to us when we read the account of how Jesus, that Peter had denied Jesus, Jesus deny, was denied. Peter denied Jesus three times. Peter asks him the same question, do you love me, three times. He wants him restored. So it goes something like this, like, do you love me? Yes. Seriously? Yeah, yes, yes, I love you, Lord. No, really, do you love me? And by this point, Peter is hurt. Reliving some of his own deep sorrow for what he had done. He says, Lord, you know everything there is to know about me. You can see right through me. Right through me. You know that I love you. Then feed my sheep. Do for these people what I did for all of you for three years. Pour your life into them. Teach them about me. Teach them what you've learned about God and about grace, Peter. Especially the lessons that you learned the hard way. This is the kind of relationship Jesus invites us into. The believing is, is the first part. But the relationship is not without cost. Because Jesus also asks us to serve him by serving others in love. It was a story we had uh, last time we gathered. We talked about the two commands he gave them at the supper together before he went to the cross. Love one another and serve one another. That's what he wants for us. If you love me, he says, show it by caring for others, by telling others about this good news. And for Peter, 
and many of the other disciples, most of the disciples, this would mean, for many of them, imprisonment and death. Doesn't matter, even so, Peter, even so, follow me. And walk in my love, learn about me. Serve me by serving others. Love me by loving those around you and telling others about me. And Jesus completely restores Peter to ministry. I, I do like, though, that Peter looks back at one point and he sees John behind them. Maybe John's kind of going like, trying to, trying to listen in on what they're actually saying, but maybe a little farther back than these, this, this painting would portray. And he looks back and, and asks Jesus, well, what about this man, Lord? What about him? And the answer was pretty straightforward. What, what is that to you? What happens to John doesn't change our relationship, Peter. You must follow me. And that's what Jesus does. He invites each of us to join him on this journey through life. And your life with Jesus is going to look very different to mine. Because he has a plan for each of us. So don't worry about what others are doing or not doing because we're also good at that. Don't worry about what others are doing. Be faithful to do what God has given you to do. He says, follow me. Doesn't matter and if it looks different for each of us. What matters is that we know him and we've received his forgiveness. And it doesn't matter where you are when you begin, but it matters that you begin this journey of following. And you might start toward Jesus from a position of relative strength. You know, you grew up hearing these things and you've sort of got a a lot that will come back to you after you, you place your trust in him. And maybe you come from a position of strength where things are going well for you, but, but you know there's something missing in your life. You might not be a, we call people that are really down, that really, really struggling, we call them down and outers sometimes. It's not a, it's not, it's kind of a pejorative term. But there's a lot of people here, you could also call up and outers. They're wealthy. They're, they've got, material goods but they're empty and they're going through the motions they need Jesus every bit as much but whatever wherever you're coming from Jesus the living God invites you and me to experience life the way that he intended it for us in the first place and if we follow him he says I will be with you Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. He, he came to Mary in her sorrow. He showed himself to Thomas in his doubt. He met the disciples in their fear behind closed door. Told them, here's my peace. You have my peace. Came to Peter in his failure and said, I restore you. This is our chance. This is our only chance for new life. The life-giving blood of Jesus cleanses us
from all sin. That's the Apostle John wrote in one of his little officials, little, little epistles. He wrote, Christ the Lord is risen today. Hallelujah. Jesus is here today. He's risen. He's alive. And in him, we are alive also. We're going to sing one more song. It has something to do with this. <laughs> 